Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. Hey everybody, it's Amy. We have such an exciting episode of Threshold Conversations for you today. Um, I had the opportunity to talk to Bill McKibben, and so we're excited to share that conversation with you. But first, I want to introduce you to Threshold's Development Director, Angela Swatek. Hey, Angela. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm doing great. It's Monday morning, November 9th, and um, I just wanted to check in with you about our membership drive. I think probably everybody hearing this knows that we're in the middle of our big annual membership drive. Tell us um, what our long-term goal is and where we are right now. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. So we are in week two of our membership drive, and it's running until the end of the year, till December 31st, and we are trying to raise $30,000 by the end of it. The, the $30,000 will help you know support our work in 2021. We have a lot of exciting things to work on and to release. And so this support, you know, these funds are going to be crucial to help us get that work off the ground. And we are doing pretty well so far. We've raised just in the first week, $2,500. So I just want to give a shout out to everybody who's donated so far. Thank you so much. Um, We are getting there. Um, Yeah. And just week one, it's already been very successful. That's so exciting. I have to tell you, if you're one of the people who's donated already, it is so fun to be working away and then get a little notification of person X just sent in $50, person Y just sent in $20. We All of those just lift our spirits so much. And thank you. Thank you, everybody, uh, for, for pitching in. Right now, this week, though, we have a super exciting kind of milestone goal if we can, if we can hit a certain amount by the end of this week. Yeah, yeah, it's so exciting. So Um, At the end of this week, so by Sunday, we are trying to raise $7,000, and that $7,000 will really help us stay on track for the rest of the campaign to hit that end goal of 30 30 grand. And if we hit $7,000 by the end of this week, a generous threshold supporter has agreed to give us a $3,000 bonus. So, you know, that's $3,000 extra, and it'll mean that at the end of week two, we would have hit 10 grand already. So it's really exciting. We're trying to raise $7,000 by the end of this week. We hope we hope those listening can help us get there. So we've got 2,500 so far, and that means we need to ramp it up a bit this week and get another $4,500. Um, and then before I let you go, Angela, we've got a really exciting event coming up in a couple of weeks too. Can you tell us what, or is that, that's just next week, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. Um, (laughs) So November 19th, um, we are holding a special event with Travis Yost. Travis 
um, composes all of the original scoring that you hear on the podcast. And Travis and Amy are going to have a conversation about their collaborative process. It's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting and entertaining. And if you're interested in attending, you can grab a ticket. It's free. We do, you know, have a suggested donation since we're in our membership drive, but you can snag a ticket at thresholdpodcast.org. And I also just want to mention too, that if you do want to help us hit our $7,000 goal, you can do that at thresholdpodcast.org slash donate. There's lots of different ways for you to support our campaign. You can make a one-time gift. You can make a monthly gift. Um, it's all at our website. Awesome. Okay. We're going to have so much fun talking with Travis, and we're so grateful to all of you who are helping us make this show. We're so excited to start working on season four in 2021. So um, hop on over to thresholdpodcast.org and make your donation today. Thank you, Angela. Happy Monday. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Bill McKibben. I'm not pretending to an optimism that I don't have. I just know that the task of the moment is to try. Bill McKibben is an author and environmental activist based in Vermont. He's a former staff writer for The New Yorker, and he currently writes their climate crisis newsletter. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, was one of the first books about climate change written for a popular audience. Other titles in his extensive catalog include Deep Economy, Enough, and Oil and Honey, The Education of an Unlikely Activist, which tells the story of how his eco-political writing eventually led him into the realm of civil disobedience and nonviolent protest. In 2008, Bill co-founded 350.org, which has grown into one of the largest grassroots climate change movements on the planet. Bill and I spoke in early May of 2020. At that time, much of the world was in lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic, and oil tankers were circling around California ports, unable to offload because of the sudden drop in oil consumption. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for joining me for Threshold Conversations. Amy, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, there are all kinds of points of intersection between this current moment we're in with the with the coronavirus pandemic and um, the much larger, broader crisis that we're also in around climate change. One of those points of intersection is in the oil industry. Because of the pandemic, global oil demand has declined radically. Oil producers are reeling. Um, and a few weeks ago, oil prices actually went into negative territory for the first time in history. You've been someone who's been advocating for a reduction in the production and consumption of oil for decades. Now it's happening. I'm just so curious what you make of this moment and what you're paying attention to right now and, and why. Right. Good questions. So look, the oil industry has been in trouble for the last, at least the last decade. And for two reasons. Uh, one, the product they make is destroying the planet. So that increasingly causes trouble for you and brings you under regulatory pressure and things. Two, uh, competitors have come up with a better, cheaper, cleaner way to produce the same thing, energy. Abu Dhabi uh, announced the biggest solar project in history, and they're going to be producing power at one cent a kilowatt hour. That's as cheap as anyone's ever managed to produce energy on the planet. So if you're the oil industry, you're in big trouble to begin with. But now we reach the pandemic and all of a sudden demand drops sharply. Um, and that's enough to just completely throw 
the future of the industry into question. Um, the prediction prior to this was that we'd hit peak oil demand sometime in the next few years. But now I think it's probably safe to say that we've seen peak oil demand on this planet, that it came in 2019, and that we'll probably never get there again. Because even though people will go back to you know driving and whatever else, uh, uh, the growth that comes in energy use over the next decade is probably mostly going to be supplied by renewable energy. Now, that does not solve the climate crisis because we need to send fossil fuel use to zero as quickly as possible to have any hope of catching up with the physics of this thing. In a sense, the most important part of oil's new weakness is that it will start losing political clout and power. Its ability to keep its business model alive for the next 20, 30, 40 years kind of depends on a lot of political clout, which in turn depends on a lot of money. And if it's beginning to suffer the way that it's suffering now, uh, it may find it has a lot fewer political friends than it used to. So I do think we're at a kind of uh, uh, really major shift right now that's been accelerated by this pandemic. I think one thing I don't understand from what you just said is why why peak oil would be in 2019. Why wouldn't we just come back roaring from this uh, consuming as much or more oil as before and maybe even, in fact, increase out of a need to, you know, restart the economy. It'll obviously bounce back some, you know, uh, as we begin, uh, you know, getting the economy back uh, going again. But I don't think anyone thinks the economy is going to come back to where it was right away. That'll take mm -hmm. a period of years. Uh, I mean, ask yourself, you know, how eager most of your friends are to go jump on an airplane right now. But as demand comes back slowly, most of it is going to be met by the rapidly growing renewable energy supply. Why, though? Why would it be? Well, because it's cheaper. Uh, so, you know, as as demand grows, it'll tend to go to the cheaper supplier, right? Um, I mean, uh, think about people who are buying cars now. Uh, yeah, some of them will buy SUVs because gas is cheap for the moment. But the the number of EVs on the market just keeps going up and up and up. And plenty of people are going to be buying those too, in part because, hey, there are people who are going to say, I don't really want to go to a gas station as much as I used to. Uh, I kind of like the fact that I can fill the thing up in my garage off the solar panels on my roof. You know, We're going to keep using oil, sadly, but it's not going to have the same growth curve that it's always had historically. That's come to an end. Hmm. One thing that comes to mind as I hear you say that is um, just thinking about jobs. And since we're in a moment of extreme employment uh, crisis right now for in so many sectors, there are a whole lot of people providing for their families um, in the oil industry. And I, I think for I'm trying to hear what you're saying from their perspective. And I think that that could sound really terrifying, like, my financial security just is is evaporating here. And what what does a person like you at the head of an environmental movement say to people like that who who that does not sound like good news to them? Right. So what everyone's been saying for a long time is, and environmentalists have been saying is, 
let's have and fund a just transition for workers who, through no fault of their own, have been doing what's been an important job for a long time. And and that's completely possible. Uh, you know, uh, we, we actually even see some of it happening right now during the pandemic, some movement in this direction. So, for instance, the Canadian government just put aside a couple of billion dollars to go to cleaning up the incredible problem of uh, uh, abandoned oil wells across Western Canada. There are abandoned oil wells all over the world. Uh, and, and it's going to be much more than a couple of billion dollars that it takes to do it. But happily, it requires the same kind of skills that built them in the first place. So they're going to be hiring people who aren't working in the oil fields now to clean up the damage that we've done. Trust me, there's plenty of damage to be cleaned up to keep people at work for a very long time. Uh, we badly need that kind of work. And there's lots of other work that we need done too. Uh, for instance, the build out of renewable energy is labor intensive in the way that, you know, fossil fuel work is usually capital intensive. Uh, you know, if you have a house someplace, the insulation is not going to, the solar panels aren't going to put themselves on the roof and you're not going to send your house to China to get it done either. You know, it has to be done close to home. And happily, there's been a lot of research to show that the skill set that people have who work in the oil fields or in the coal fields is actually really well suited with relatively minimal retraining to doing precisely that kind of highly necessary work. Do you think that this moment where um, we are suddenly investing trillions of dollars uh, in in trying to shore up the economy in this crisis, what do you think the chances are that some of that money is going to go towards things like that? In America, right at the moment, nil, because you've got a buffoon for president who's, uh, you know, a captive of the oil industry. And so he's just giving them, you know, high dollar bailouts to try and keep doing what they're doing. But that's completely ridiculous. You know, most countries on earth are doing just the opposite. The Germans, the South Koreans, the Canadians, to some extent, are using this as an opportunity to, I mean, they know that you have to retool our energy economy for the future because of climate change. And since we're in a somewhere between a recession and a depression at the moment, uh, this is the opportunity to do it. You can borrow money at next to no cost uh, uh, in order to go and do work that everyone knows has to be done and in the process put lots of people to work. One thing I'm just fascinated by is how quickly we flipped from thinking about oil as something highly precious, something that a lot of people are constantly worried about not having enough of, to suddenly it's something that we've ha we have too much of, at least temporarily, and and not and not for ideological reasons, but just like practically, like we don't have enough physical places to put the oil, and to me that's just kind of fascinating and it, it highlights how capricious the whole thing is of, of, of what we decide is valuable versus what we decide is 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 not and I don't know if that will have any kind of long-term effect on our thinking here but I'm just kind of wondering what that's done to, to your thinking since you're a person who's been trying to say for such a long time we have too much of this like wh what does it feel like to suddenly watch people truly struggling to have enough places to physically put the oil what it reminds us, I think, is that this is a, 
uh, industry that's always counted on the fact that it was it it was the only way to get things done. I mean, fossil fuel was the heart of, of modernity. I mean, you know, you can trace the world as we know it to the invention of the steam engine and the understanding that you could burn coal to generate power in significant amounts. It, in essence, gave everybody in the Western world, you know, 50 or 100 servants to do work for them. And because of that, because it was the kind of keystone commodity, uh, it ruled the world. I mean, you know, the Rockefellers and so on were the most powerful people on the planet. Some of that remains, but that's shifting fast because when the sun comes up in the morning, it delivers power to people who have solar panels on their roofs. I mean, talk about a business model getting undermined. That's why the Exxons of the world have fought so hard to deny climate change, to forestall this transition. I mean, their business was built on you writing a check every month for for some more fossil fuel. From their point of view, it's almost blasphemous that the sun can just come up and deliver it to you for free. Mm. What What about the clean energy, the renewable energy sector? I, I mean, this economic downturn that we're we're in heading into here is affecting um, renewables too. I think I think I read that over a hundred thousand clean energy workers filed for unemployment in the United States just in the month of March. Um, so what what effect do you think the the pandemic will have on the renewable energy industry? I, I mean, clearly it's having a short-term tough effect on literally every sector of the economy except, I don't know, Netflix and I don't know what else. But, but I think over time, probably relatively, the clean energy industry is going to do better than the dirty energy industry. Uh, that's where the growth is continuing to come. How do you think all of that um, I guess I'd like to, to think about how that shift interacts with social justice issues that are embedded into um, the fossil fuel economy, but also are not necessarily uh, just just because we're getting power from from wind turbines or solar panels doesn't mean that we can't also continue lots of social injustices if we make <laughs> if we if we want to. Um, so how do we, as we make that transition, how do we uh, make sure that we're not just, you know, putting wind, wind farms on indigenous lands or uh, putting giant solar farms in places that um, endanger different species? And, and, and how do we do that in a way that's fair? Right. Well, first of all, first of all, let's make clear that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, there are lunches that are a little freer than others, uh, but you can't produce energy on anything like the scale that we use without it having consequences. That's one of the reasons we should try hard to use less uh, and why questions around consumption and things have always been really important. Second thing to say is there are some really powerful things that happen when you move away from fossil fuel. And one of them has to do with not only global warming, but with other kinds of air pollution, which affect poor communities, communities of color, far more than anybody else. So for instance, just to give the most you know obvious example, Delhi in India, there are 5 million children there, two and a half million of them have irreversible lung damage just from breathing the air. And in the last few weeks in the pandemic, people there have actually gotten literally the first lungfuls of clean air that they've ever 
breathed in their lives. So moving toward renewable energy helps there. Doesn't mean that it solves every problem. The other place that it helps, I think, is that to one degree or another, it moves us a little closer towards more local control of this incredibly important commodity. You know, fossil fuel is concentrated in a few places on the planet. And the people who have control of those places have outsized influence on our lives. Uh, People are going to get rich building solar panels, but I don't think anyone's going to get Koch brothers rich simply because, as I said, once the panel's up, the sun does the work for free. So one can do this in better and worse ways and uh, just and more just ways. And everyone should work hard to try and make sure that as we make decisions about where to do things, when to do things, that we try to do it in ways that benefit those who were most abused by the old economy and not just replicate the same uh, injustices. That's one of the things that the Green New Deal legislation, that the Sunrise Movement and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey have have promulgated. That's one of the things that it's really strong on, is really paying attention to what we now understand. Uh, the basic bottom line is we've got to stop the process of climate change fast, or it will make life literally impossible for the poorest people on this planet. I mean, the iron law of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the sooner you get hammered by it. We're going to take a short break and be back with more of my conversation with Bill McKibben right after this. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Bill McKibben, author and co-founder of 350.org, an organization which has become a major force in the movement to prevent climate catastrophe. Bill's writing and activism has earned him a bevy of awards and 18 honorary degrees. The name 350.org refers to the goal of reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the air to 350 parts per million. In the spring of 2020, we hit a record 417 parts per million, the highest levels of atmospheric CO2 in human history. We're going to pick up my conversation with Bill with a discussion of an article he wrote for Time magazine in September of 2019 titled, Hello from the Year 2050. In it, he outlined a potential future in which we took meaningful action on climate change and managed to steer ourselves away from the worst possible outcomes. To get there, he says, we have to learn three things in the 2020s. First, we aren't getting out of this unscathed. Second, there are solutions to the climate crisis. And third, he says, is the biggest reason we haven't made progress so far is because of the political power of the fossil fuel industry. I was intrigued by this thought experiment and wanted to dig into it a bit with Bill. I think there are people out there who might be open to your first two points, people who might say, okay, I I get it, climate change is real, it has real consequences, and the second one, that yeah, there are probably things we could do to solve this problem or at least mitigate some of the worst effects. But I think that there are, there are a number of people who would not be willing to go to point number three, that the biggest reason we're not making progress is because of the fossil fuel industry. And I wonder if you were talking to a person like that, maybe someone who's like, I do accept the science. I I do know this is real. But when you start talking about 
oil companies like they're the boogeyman. I'm out. I don't I don't buy that. And and what would you say or what have you said to that kind of person? Well, first of all, I I rarely find that that's a problem. Uh, I find most people don't like oil companies much to begin with. Um, and so they're open to the idea that they might not be uh, honest actors here. And then once you start laying out what we now know, people really begin to get appalled. I mean, there's been great investigative reporting. You're brothers and sisters at the LA Times, at Inside Climate News, at the Columbia Journalism School, have done remarkable work over the last five years to document from whistleblowers and archives and things. The the single most startling fact of this era, which is that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change in the 1980s. They studied it and they understood it. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. Exxon was the biggest company on earth. Uh, it had great scientists on staff. Its product was carbon. Of course, they're going to try and figure it out. And they did. I mean, you know, one of the really remarkable documents I've seen recently comes from Exxon scientists in the 1980s. It predicts with uncanny accuracy what the temperature and the CO2 concentration were going to be in 2020. They got it right. And they were believed, you know, internally. Exxon began building all its drilling rigs higher to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was on the way. What they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Instead, the whole industry joined together to build this sort of series of front groups and things. And and they concocted a basically phony 30-year debate about whether or not global warming was real a debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just that one of them was willing to lie. And it became really the most consequential lie in human history because it's cost us 30 years when we could have been at work on this. So uh, I, I think that people are now catching on to that. I mean, we didn't catch on to it in time. There's a lot of irreversible damage from global warming that's already happened. Maybe we're in time to keep it from getting absolutely, utterly out of control. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, we may have let things get too far already, but the best science indicates we have a narrow window, one that stretches perhaps to 2030, according to the last IPCC reports, to make very fundamental change that might still give us some breathing room. Mm -hmm. I guess I just wanna press you a little bit though, because w whether or not there's more people who who do accept um, all of those things you just laid out. There is a segment of society that doesn't. And I, I'm just curious how you engage with people who don't go that route with you or who are put off by talk of the oil industry being kind of the enemy or the villain. Um, how do you reach people like that who might be open to hearing about the science but are not on board with some of the more political elements of what you're saying? Well, there are other ways, of course, that people can uh, understand all this. Sometimes people are impressed and moved by the fact that the Pentagon considers climate change a huge national security risk, as well they should. Sometimes people are moved by the fact that religious communities are now at the forefront of this work. Above all, Pope Francis has been changing a lot of minds within the biggest religious movement on the planet. Uh, sometimes it's the, just the economics of it. One thing that 
everyone seems to like is renewable energy. Now, I think the reasons that people like it are different. Conservatives, I think, often tend to sort of enjoy the every man in his own castle. I'm not going to depend on anyone for anything, uh, you know, while liberals are enjoying the, you know, warmth of the sun. We're all in this together uh, vibe. Uh, Doesn't matter. Get you pretty much the same place. and, And that place is a world that runs the way we need it to run. Does it matter, though, that we all or the majority of us come to see the oil industry as um, as a nefarious force here that has to be stopped? Do you think that's a crucial element in actually making progress is having that what you see as that truth be known and shared and, and acted upon collectively? Yeah, I think that I think that if we I mean, it doesn't take everyone doing it, but it takes the people in power. Uh, willing to stand up here. Um, and, you know, that's the, one of the great political divides of our time. Now, you're never going to convince everybody of, of anything, especially when there are people who make a lot of money from the status quo. But we're getting much closer to seeing the kind of political willingness to take action that we need. So, you know, I, I helped write the Democratic platform in 2016, uh, no matter who the nominee is, they're now on energy issues well to the left of where that platform is. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's talked about on the first day in office ending uh, new drilling on federal land, which would be a big deal. Federal land in the U.S., federal land would be the fifth biggest nation in the world in terms of its carbon uh, uh, contribution. So, change is coming because activists have worked so hard to make it come. Hmm. You know, one of the things that people are talking about a lot during the pandemic is, um, is, is social trust. And we're in this weird conundrum where we can feel, we're simultaneously feeling this urge to help each other out and we're unable to, to actually physically come together and, and work together right now. And it, it kind of struck me that that was um, a little bit of a of an analogy, that tension between those two things, between something that I feel like I observe in the climate change movement, where on the one hand, um, you know, leaders of that movement, and, and I consider you one of those leaders, are tasked with or have taken on the task of, of trying to wake people up, and, and that involves you know, saying like, things are going to get really, really bad here, possibly irreparably bad. Um, But at the same time, trying to say, hey, everybody, let's come together, let's organize, let's run for office, let's try to um, change things. And I wonder if you feel a tension between those two messages, because I I do sometimes. Yeah, go ahead. I think the only way to to deal with the tension is just to try and be as honest all the time as possible. You know, we don't know what we can still prevent here. Um, it's pretty clear that we're going to be very hard pressed to stop the rise in temperature short of two degrees Celsius. And it's clear that two degrees Celsius is going to do a hideous amount of damage, but a lot less damage than three degrees or four degrees. Uh, the best thinking, I think, indicates that if you get up around three degrees, well, you probably can't have civilizations like the ones we're used to having. The damage just gets too unbearable. So, you know, at least for the moment, it's clear that our job is to try and limit 
the damage and work really hard to do that. And so I, 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 I think that's all we can say really at this point is just try to be honest about it. But I think your larger point about social trust is really key. I mean, one thing that I hope happens in the pandemic, uh, and I think is happening in a way, is that we're starting to realize that the political truths we've lived under the last 40 years aren't truths at all. We've kind of lived our life in the shadow of Ronald Reagan and the idea that markets would solve all problems and that our job was to each try and get as rich as we could. And I mean, what were his, you know, his most famous line, you know, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. But that's clearly not true. I mean, the scariest words in the English language are, uh, sorry, no more ventilators. You know, uh, watch out the hill behind your house is caught on fire, you know. And those are the kind of problems you can only solve when you have a working government, when you when we come together to do the things that need doing. And I think maybe we might be starting to get that. We look around the world and we see who's dealing better and worse with the pandemic. And, you know, it's pretty clear that it's not an advantage to have, uh, you know, to, to have what we have, which is just everyone running, you know, every state having to fend for themselves, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, we'd be a lot better off if we had responsible, sane, collective leadership. And yet, I I hear a lot of deep cynicism and lack of trust in those very institutions coming from people in the climate movement. I mean, certainly, I, I'm not trying to say everyone, but there is a strain within the climate movement of an attitude of everything is broken, everyone is corrupt, this system doesn't need to be changed, it needs to be destroyed. Um, you know, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about? I'm sure you've encountered that as well. Sure. And I, I think that's what I'm I, I'm kind of trying to get to is like, how, how do you marry that deep, deep disillusionment um, with the work that needs to be done, basically, to survive this? I don't really know. I mean, I, I don't know whether those whether people who have, you know, reached a point of that kind of cynicism are open to doing the kind of work together that we need to do. I am happy to observe that the size of the movement of people who do want to work together keeps growing all the time. You know, I mean, we started out with things like 350.org, but those were early iterations. Now we also see... Uh, you know, the Sunrise Movement, which came out of all the campus fossil fuel divestment work, but has birthed the Green New Deal. Now we see Extinction Rebellion around Europe and increasingly in other parts of the world, really bringing a strong challenge. We see profoundly the rise of uh, the real youth climate movement. Everybody knows Greta Thunberg, but and she's wonderful. It's been a great pleasure to get to know and work with her. But even greater pleasure is the fact that there are 10,000 Gretas around the world, young leaders who are just amazing, and millions and millions of followers of those people. So that's who, you know, that's who I work with because they're willing to work, um, you know, and, and as I say, those movements are growing and getting stronger. One of the things we understand about nonviolent social movements now that we've had onto a century to kind of study them since people like Gandhi and the suffragettes invented them really in the 20th century. One of the things we understand is that it doesn't take everyone to make change. 
And that's because apathy and cynicism cuts both ways. The record would indicate that most cases, if you can get four or five percent of people really involved in a fight, you'll generally be able to win. Uh, we have some sense of that, you know, in the U.S. because the first Earth Day 50 years ago, we know that about 10 percent of Americans, about 20 million people, were in the streets that day, and that means that I mean that was enough to change the zeitgeist, and that got the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the EPA passed. And what do you know? the air and the water got a lot cleaner than they had been before. So, you know, we operate on the faith that if we build movements of that size and scale and skill and passion, then we've got a chance. And I'm not pretending to an optimism that I don't have. I just know that there's, you know, that the, that the task of the moment is to try. Yeah. I would love to just get your thoughts about crisis and, and time. Um, <laughs> I saw I saw a photograph of a po protester on Earth Day who was holding a sign that said normal was a crisis. Um, and a month before that, you were writing about the nature of crisis in your newsletter for The New Yorker. Um, and I just I wonder how you're you're thinking about this particular moment of crisis, which is sweeping over us in a matter of months when, as you just said, for for 30 years, you've been trying to get the world to pay attention to this this climate crisis. Um, are you finding yourself at all frustrated? Like, hey, world, I've been talking about a really important crisis for a long time. How come you haven't been paying attention? Or how are you sitting with this this current crisis? There are probably th two or three things that come out of what we're learning about the COVID crisis that help us understand the larger overarching crisis of this century around climate. Uh, one of them we already discussed, this kind of need for social solidarity, the kind of end to the fantasy that problems just fix themselves automatically. Uh, the, the second thing I think that's really important is underlining the idea that reality matters. Um, you know, uh, uh, I've been, as you point out, spent 30 years saying, physics and chemistry are real. You can't spin or negotiate or force them to compromise. Uh, you have to respect the CO2 molecule and, and what it means. And the COVID microbe is the same way. I mean, it's forcing people to understand that biology is real and it doesn't matter exactly what you want. If it says stand six feet away, you'd be well advised to stand six feet away. You know? So that's good in that sense, just to have that lesson underlined. There are no silver linings to a pandemic, but if you're going to go through this much trauma, you might as well learn something. And the other thing I think to learn is that when you're dealing with reality, timing is crucial. Uh, we've seen the country, you know, the U.S. and South Korea got coronavirus on the same day. The South Koreans went to work flattening the curve and by now, they're kind of looking at things in the rearview mirror. They took some disruption up front and went to work. And the U.S. didn't. And so now the thing is crashing through the windshield, you know. Um, uh, similarly, we could have flattened the carbon curve 30 years ago with some pretty modest interventions, a price on carbon, that kind of thing. Since we didn't, now we still have to move with even greater speed. But the disruption will be larger and we're not going to avoid paying a heavy price no matter what we do at this point. So to me, those are things worth taking away from these odd, weird months that we've endured. I was, I was interested to, 
um, learned that the word crisis actually was a Greek word and it means the turning point in a disease. It's the point where you either recover or you die. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the problem is, is though it's so hard to see that point when you're living through it. And I feel like that's another thing that we can kind of learn from this moment is that we really, it's really hard to see right now where we are. Like, should we be reopening or should we not? Um, because we don't exactly know where we are on the timeline here. And with the climate crisis, it's even harder to to see that because it's playing out over decades or centuries. Yes, and it is. On the other hand, with the climate I, crisis, we understand the underlying science much more, much more firmly. Uh, you know, th- mm. there's still a lot of variables we don't know about COVID-19, but carbon, we've got a we've got a handle on. We know what, precisely what's going on. I mean, we know exactly, you know, you, if you burn this much oil, that's how much temperature goes up. So so really, we have no excuse for not uh, taking stronger action, save the excuse that the power of vested interest gets in the way. But But with the coronavirus pandemic, people are feeling the fear in a very immediate way. And um, although we may have the science well understood, um, understanding the science and feeling the actual physical fear of like, this thing is going to hurt me are two very different things. And in terms of motivating, you know, human behavior. I, I take the point, but remember, I mean, it depends where you are. Um, um, it's not like people in Australia or California or uh, the other places that have felt the sting of the climate crisis don't get it in some visceral level, they do. And that's one of the reasons that the polling on it's moved so powerfully in the last few years. Well, Mother Nature is a good educator. They do and they don't, though, because, I mean, I've spent a, a, quite a bit of time in the Arctic now, and I definitely talk to some people who are very much directly impacted by climate change who are still saying that they don't believe that it's caused by humans. And well, there's always going to be people who can't deal with science. I mean, there's people holding demonstrations saying we shouldn't vaccinate anybody either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if, if the question is how to convince people to be in, in contact with reality, I don't have a perfect answer for that, that it's going to work in every case. Yeah, I guess like I think I what I was was trying to get to is just that it feels it's remarkable to me to see, um, you know, I guess it's starting to fray now as people are starting to have fights about whether or not we should reopen. But there was a moment there when I felt like the country was more unified than I've seen it in in years around the idea of this danger is real. We need to stay away from each other to protect everybody. And um, and I had a moment, I guess, internally of, oh, if only we could feel this same immediacy with climate, you know, and right. and and I just wondered how you're processing that. So do yourself the thought experiment on the day that Jim Hansen in 1988 explains to the Congress that climate change is real. Say the CEO of Exxon had gone on TV that night and said, you know what, our scientists are finding exactly the same thing which they were, uh, no one would have said, oh, Exxon, just a bunch of climate alarmists. Everyone would have said, okay, we got a problem. Let's get to work. That didn't happen. Instead, it was used to fuel the divisions that we see around us. And we ended up in a really difficult, dangerous place. Uh, Eventually, people will understand uh, and get to work. 
but eventually may be too late. And the job of movements is to try and force that spring to make things happen faster. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a great pleasure for me and thank you for your good work. This episode of Threshold Conversations was funded by the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. We're also funded by contributions from our listeners. Join our community at thresholdpodcast.org donate. Hi, I'm Joe in Missoula, Montana, and this episode is sponsored by Clearwater Credit Union, a values-based, member-owned banking cooperative proudly serving Montana since 1956. Clearwater believes banking can be a force for good and is committed to building a brighter, more sustainable future. For more information on Clearwater's commitment to the environment or to join, visit clearwatercreditunion.org sustainability. The Threshold team includes Casey Simpson, Angela Swatek, Talia Farnsworth, Eva Kalea, and Nick Mott, with help from Caroline Kurtz, Dan Carreno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, and Matt Herlihy. Our music is by Travis Yost. <laughs>